Abraham had Isaac, Isaac he had Jacob, Jacob he had Judah and his kin. Well, then Perez and Zerah came from Judah's woman Tamar. Perez he brought Hezron up and then came Aram, then Amenadab, then Nashan, who was then the dad of Salmon, who with Rahab fathered Boaz. Ruth, she married Boaz, who had Obed, who had Jesse. Jesse, he had David, who we know as king. David, he had Solomon by dead Uriah's wife. Solomon, well, you all know him. He had good old Rehoboam, followed by Abijah, who had Asa. Asa had Jehoshaphat, had Joram, had Isaiah, who had Jotham, then Ahaz, then Hezekiah. Followed by Manasseh, who had Amon, who was a man, who was father of a good boy named Josiah. Who grandfathered Jehoiakim, who caused the Babylonian captivity, because he was a liar. Then he had Shealtiel, who begat Zerubbabel, who had Abiud, who had Eliakim. Eliakim had Azer, who had Zadok, who had Achim. Achim was the father of Eliab. Then he had Eliezer, who had Nathan, who had Jacob. Listen very closely, I don't want to sing this twice. Jacob was the father of Joseph, husband of Mary, mother of Christ. That was the beginning of the greatest story ever told. And if it didn't make your heart beat fast, don't feel guilty. I mean, think about it for a second. Matthew opens up the gospel of Jesus Christ with a list of names. Not, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Not even, anyone remember the beginning of the jerk? You know, not even, I was born a poor Jewish child. You know, just a list of names. What's up with that? And you're saying, yeah, but Brett, you don't have to preach on the list, do you? Well, today we are. What is going on here with this? Many would point out that Matthew is Jewish, writing primarily to a Jewish audience. And for Jewish people, heritage, ancestry, meant everything. Remember how the story of Jesus' birth is told in Luke chapter 2? When it says Caesar Augustus was on the throne and he called for everybody to be taxed. And so everybody was to go to their hometown. And and where did Mary and Joseph go? They went to Bethlehem. Why? Because they were of the line of David. And that was the town of David. They traced their ancestry back a thousand years. And were able to say, that's our hometown. We go all the way back to David. That's our hometown. Heritage meant every, I mean, how many, how many of you can go back a thousand years in your heritage? Maybe some of you can. How many of you would want to? How many of you would be a little afraid to? Maybe what you might find in the process might not be something you'd want to have revealed. But, um, but they go all the way back. Why? Because being Jewish really matters. 
Not being Gentile. I mean, Gentiles were dogs. I mean, if you were mixed race, that was even worse. I have a goal this morning. My goal is for you to leave this place and say, I love the genealogical record of Jesus. This is my favorite passage in the whole Bible. You can take Psalm 23. I'll take the, okay, I'm not quite that ambitious. But my goal is at least that you'll walk away and say, this is so practical and personal. This really is my story. How is it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word that is living and active, and and we know that you speak through it. And so I pray today, Lord, that you would speak to us even through this genealogy of Jesus. Through Christ I pray. Amen. How is this practical and personal? First of all, because it reminds us that the gospel is good news, not just good advice. The first thing you have to notice about Matthew's opening is he opens up by talking about real people who lived in real places in real time. He's talking about real history. He doesn't begin once upon a time or you know, a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Or you know how sometimes those movies begin um, based on a true story, which means they're not, right? <laughs> Matthew doesn't begin, that's how, that's how fables begin. Matthew begins by essentially saying, I'm telling you what really happened. I'm not writing better advice for a better life. I'm reporting real events that you have to deal with in your life. You know the difference between advice and news. Advice is proverbs about how you can live better. News just reports, true news just reports what actually happened. Advice is about how to be a good person. News is about facts that we have to respond to. Every religion in the world is about advice for better living. At the heart of Christianity, we have good news. Facts, events that really happened that we have to do something about. Think about it in this way. Um, The Civil uh, Battle of Fredericksburg was uh, was fought about this time in 1862, December 13th. The Union troops came through the town uphill, the Confederate troops owned the, the Heights, Marie's Heights. Imagine you show up a couple of days earlier, your military advisor, December 10th, let's say. You go to advise. What do you do? You would say, well, go this way, don't go this way. Put your cannons here, don't put your cannons here. Set up some stronghold here, don't go there. Kind of that you give advice in advance. But what happens if you show up two weeks later after the battle's over? As a military advisor, you're not there to say, oh, this is what you should do in that battle and this is what you shouldn't do. You're there to say, this is what happened. These are the facts. When kings would win battles in ancient times, they would send messengers to proclaim the news. Those messengers, in Greek, the word for messenger was angeloi, the word from which we get our word angels. They were reporters of what happened. Luke 2, the angel said to them, do not be afraid for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the city of David, a savior has been born for you who is the Messiah, the Lord. 
The good news they reported is that Jesus is God with us. God has become man. It really happened. Read the account objectively, and the gospel writers claim that Jesus was born to real people, Mary and Joseph, in a real time when the Roman Empire was in control when Caesar Augustus was on the throne in a real place, Bethlehem. Not only do they name it, but if you would have gone there 10 years after Jesus was born, they would have told you, oh, this is where Jesus was born. We know he was born here in Bethlehem. This is why when the gospel writers write of their accounts, they say like Peter does in 2 Timothy, or 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 16, we didn't follow cleverly contrived myths. Or Luke, as he opens his gospel in verse 3, says, It seemed good to me since I have carefully investigated everything from the first to write to you an orderly sequence of events so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. The gospel of Jesus is good news being reported that really happened. The historic credibility matters Do you understand why? Because it's reporting a supernatural event. God has come to be with us. Notice in verse 16 of the genealogy, Matthew makes this point. See what it says? Jacob fathered Joseph, who fathered Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Is that what it says? No. It says, Jacob fathered Joseph, the Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary who gave birth to Jesus, who's called the Messiah. Now, it makes no sense to have a woman's name in there. Heritage was passed down through the men. But Matthew's making the point, Joseph was not Jesus' father. He was the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus. His father was the Holy Spirit. That's what the angel said to Mary in Luke chapter 1. Mary asked, how can this be? I've not had sexual relations with a man. And the angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. This fulfilled the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Emmanuel, which is God with us. In my opinion, nobody has captured this miracle of God with us, this amazing event, better than, in our time anyway, better than Max Lucado. Listen to his description. He says, God became man. While the creatures of earth walked unaware, divinity arrived. Heaven opened herself and placed her most precious one in a a human womb. God as fetus, holiness sleeping in a womb. God was given eyebrows, elbows, two kidneys and a spleen. He stretched against the walls and floated in the amniotic fluid of his mother. God had come near. He came not in a flash of light or as an unapproachable conqueror, But ones whose first cries were heard by a peasant girl and a sleepy carpenter. 
The hands that first held him were unmanicured, calloused, and dirty. No silk, no ivory, no hype, no party, no hoopla. Were it not for the shepherds, there would have been no reception. Were it not for a group of stargazers, there would have been no gifts. Angels watched as Mary changed God's diaper. The universe watched with wonder as the Almighty learned to walk. Children played in the streets with him. And had the synagogue leader in Nazareth known who was listening to his sermons, Jesus may have had pimples. He may have been tone deaf. Perhaps a girl down the street had a crush on him or vice versa. It could be that his knees were bony. One thing's for sure, he was, while completely divine, completely human. For 33 years, he would feel everything that you and I have ever felt. He felt weak, he grew weary, he was afraid of failure, he was susceptible to willing women, he got colds, burped, and had body odor. His feelings got hurt, his feet got tired, his head ached. To think of Jesus in such a light, well, it, it seems almost irreverent, doesn't it? It's not something we like to do. It's uncomfortable. It's much easier to keep the humanity out of the incarnation. Clean the manure from around the manger. Pretend he never stored or blew his nose or hit his thumb on a hammer with a hammer. He's easier to stomach that way. There's something about keeping him divine that keeps him distant, packaged, predictable. But don't do it. For heaven's sake, don't do it. Let him be as human as he intended to be. Let him into the muck and mire of our world. For only if we let him in can he pull us out. Listen to him. Love your neighbor was spoken by a man whose neighbors tried to kill him. The challenge to leave family for the gospel was issued by one who kissed his mother goodbye in the doorway. Pray for those who persecute you came from the lips that would soon be begging God to forgive his murderers. It all happened in a moment, in one moment, a most remarkable moment. The word became flesh. Listen, if all we have is Jesus as a real man, that's nice, but it's not enough. What brings salvation is the good news that Jesus is God with us. Malcolm Muggeridge said it well when he said, as man alone, Jesus could not save us. As God alone, he would not. Made flesh, he could and did. See, the genealogy of Jesus is personal and practical because it reminds us that this most amazing thing happened in Real history, God became flesh to be Savior for us. It's reportage of good news. The Bible isn't just like every other religion, just advice for better living. The genealogy of Jesus is very practical as well because it's a genealogy of grace. In ancient times, genealogies were not just cold lists, they were resumes. You know, and so kind of like resumes today, they were selective with their genealogies. 
Um, if you went to college for like a year and you flunked out, and then you decide to go back to college and you graduated with honors and maybe you went to grad school and did well, and you're putting together your resume, do you include that first year where you failed? No. You just put in how you graduated with honors and the future work that you did and that kind of, you don't put in the stuff that doesn't necessarily, isn't necessarily helpful for your narrative. And that's how it was with old ancient genealogies. They would include the people that helped. They were like their resumes. They were, when they would go to a place, they would say, oh, this is our heritage. This is my family. So they would selectively leave out the people that didn't build their resume. If there was a pirate or a thief or maybe a preacher in their past, they would say, let's not include that. We'll just, um, maybe you all like preachers better than most people do. But, so, but with that in mind, notice how selective Jesus is when he shares his genealogy. Verse 2, Abraham fathered Isaac. Now it makes sense to have Abraham in there because he is the father of the covenant. He is in the New Testament, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, he's the father of faith. But you don't have to dig very deeply before you see this father of faith was also a doubter. On two different occasions, God promised Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a child, and through that child, it will be a blessing to all people. And yet after a period of time, I thought like 10 years had passed, nothing happened, Abraham begins to doubt. And so he puts the covenant at danger. His wife says, why don't you just sleep with my servant Hagar and have a child through him? Maybe we can help God accomplish what he wants. Maybe we can take control of this situation and not do it, you know, not trust God to do it his way. And so he sleeps with Hagar, has a child, Ishmael, and the world, the Middle East has been fighting ever since. God says that is not the covenant child. Still, before they've had the child, Sarah and Abraham have to go to Egypt and Apparently, Sarah is a, is a beautiful woman because Abraham's afraid that she's so beautiful that once he gets to Egypt, they will kill him so they can have her for a wife. Again, God has promised Abraham twice, has personally given him this covenant, I will make you a great nation. I will give you through Sarah a child who will be a blessing to all people. But good old faithful Abraham says, Sarah, when we get down there, you tell them you're my sister, not my wife. Yeah, they may marry you. Yeah, they may make you pregnant. Yes, that may really mess up the whole covenant promise that God has made. But at least it'll save my skin. It was cowardly. It was wrong. And Abraham did this after he came to faith. Let that sink in. In Romans chapter, one, or chapter 4, verse 2, it says, Abraham was righteousness in God's sight when he believed. And that was before he doubted and slept with Hagar. That was before he lied about Sarah being his wife. And there's Abraham, prominent on the list, because it's a list about God's grace. Verse 2 tells us that Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Boy, we could tell a lot about Jacob, couldn't we? Jacob was a 
again, a liar, a deceiver. He tricked his brother and father out of his brother's inheritance. And yet there's Jacob. Verse 3 says, Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now, there's some people you don't want on your list if you want to have a list that builds you credibility spiritually. I mean, Judah for most of his life, was a nasty guy. He's the one, it was his idea to sell the, his brother Joseph to the Midianites. So let's sell him to the Midianites. Let's go. And then there's this weird episode where Judah's son dies, and Judah's supposed to take responsibility for his daughter-in-law to make sure she has children, and he doesn't. And so Tamar, his daughter-in-law, takes matters into her own hands. And there's a time she knows that Judah's going to be out of town on a business trip. And she goes to this town where he's going. She disguises herself as a prostitute. And Judah's out of town. What kind of guy is he? He's the kind of guy when he's out of town, he goes to see a prostitute. But he doesn't have anything to pay her with. And so he says, well, here, take my ring and take my, my staff. And, and they have my signia on. I'll come back and pay you later on. You know, here's, here's, here's you know, down payment for it, basically. So he sleeps with her, leaves, comes back, can't find her, not sure what to make of it. Three months later, Tamar shows up to the family pregnant. And Judah is outraged. Burn her, he says. Execute her. And she says, the father of this child within me is the one who owns these, this ring and this staff. And Judah says, she is more righteous than I am. And the child, twins, came from that, that incestuous union. And one of those twins was named Perez, a forefather of Jesus. Verse 5 mentions Rahab. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Rahab was not just a Gentile in Jericho, she was a prostitute in Jericho, but she believed God. She protected the spies. She sent them out another way. Hebrews chapter 11 lists her in the hall of fame of the faith. By faith, Abraham the pro uh, I'm sorry, Rahab the prostitute welcomed the spies in peace and didn't perish with those who disobeyed. Again, it makes absolutely no sense to list women in your ancestry. Women did not pass on the lineage. But there are four or five women listed here, including Rahab, the prostitute. Consider David, verse 6. Jesse fathered King David. Now you think there's a name that you want in your list. He is the king against which against whom all other kings of Israel were measured. He was a man after God's own heart, wrote more than half the Psalms. Except, notice how he's listed in this resume, verse 6. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Doesn't even mention her name, it just mentions Uriah, her husband. You know what that's about? You know who Uriah was? When David was running from King Saul for about 10 or 15 years, Uriah was one of his faithful generals. Uriah would have done anything. Uriah would have died for David, put his life at risk for David many times. But after David became king and everybody else was out for war and Uriah was out for war, one day he was hanging out in the palace and he looks over 
and he looks down and on and bathing on the top of uh, on the roof of her house is Bathsheba Uriah's wife now I wouldn't recommend bathing on the top of your house in the middle of the day I wouldn't recommend bathing on the top of your house in the middle of the night quite frankly but here's David on his balcony and he looks down what would you have done what do you do when there's a provocative scene on television or movie or opportunity on your computer David looked and he looked again and he invited Bathsheba to his palace and he slept with her and she became pregnant he essentially ordered the arrangement of the murder of her husband Uriah but eventually they married they had a son named Solomon who became king, one of the wisest men who ever lived. It was a shameful episode for David. He knew better. He knew the Ten Commandments. He had written psalms to God, finer songs than I will ever write. After being a man after God's own heart, he committed adultery and murdered, but then he repented and God forgave. And he became an ancestor of Jesus Christ. Go through this list and you will discover one shameful story after another. Notice Manasseh in verse 10. Hezekiah fathered Manasseh who fathered Ammon. Billy Graham once called Manasseh the most wicked man who ever lived. More wicked than Stalin, more wicked than Mao, more wicked than whoever thought it was a good idea to domesticate cats. At age 12, he became king of Israel and reigned with unmatched arrogance for 55 years. He ignored God's word. He ignored God's prophets. He sacrificed his own son on the fire to Moloch because, after all, in those days... It was his son, his choice. He set up temple prostitutes like the pagan nations around him. He wanted to be on the right side of history. He practiced witchcraft, worshiped the stars, encouraged people to get wisdom from the spirits of the dead because he didn't want to be exclusive. He wanted to, you know, you know one religion is just as good as another. He filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. Many believe that he was the one who ordered the execution of the prophet Isaiah himself. Yet as wicked as Manasseh was, he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He repented and God forgave him. When I think of Manasseh's day, I think of the United States today and the wickedness that we see around us. Manasseh did repent, and sadly, though, he discovered that it's much easier to lead people to rebel against God than it is to be holy. Yet despite all his wickedness, verse 10 says, Manasseh fathered Ammon. He makes the resume of Jesus. 
See, it's easy to read the Bible and think God saves good people. God loves me because I'm a good person. Or maybe on the other side, um, God could never forgive me because I'm so, so bad. God could never use me because I've made so many mistakes. But the genealogy of Jesus is a genealogy of grace. Remember the little boy who handed his long wish list to Santa? Sitting on Santa's lap, he asked for a bicycle and a bunch of video games and an iWatch and an iPhone and an iPad and all this stuff. And the list went on and on and on. And Santa looks at the list and says, this is a pretty impressive list. This is a pretty long list. He says, tell you what, I'll, 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 I'll look over your life really closely this week and we'll see what we can do. Little boy yanked that list out of Santa's hand and said, I'll settle for the bike. None of us could stand strict scrutiny of our lives, could we? Ephesians 2.1 says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Psalm 51, David writes, I'm conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Against you and you alone I have sinned and done evil in your sight. This is why Jesus came into a sinful world. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, for while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone will dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God doesn't save us because we're good. That's the good news of the genealogy of Jesus. He saves us and uses us because of his grace. Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. See, sometimes people talk about their names being written in God's book of life. If you're a Christian, your name is written in the genealogy of Jesus. This is the wonderful thing about the genealogy of Jesus. Genealogies are really boring unless they're your genealogy. This is really practical and personal because this is your family history and mine. Right there with Abraham the doubter and Jacob the liar and Judah the adulterer and, A and Rahab the prostitute and David the murderer and Manasseh the most wicked man who ever lived. Your name. Why? Because God sent his son to save doubters and liars and adulterers and prostitutes and murderers and wicked people and even an occasional cat fan. Yeah, that one's hard to believe, but it's really true. Some of you are saying, okay, I, I, but I'm not really that bad of a person. Let me share with you a, 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 a graphic that has helped me share with others. And, and I want to share this because it'll help us make this point, but I hope that maybe you can use this in sharing with others as well. Somebody said, imagine that life is a ladder, okay? And at the top of the ladder, this is the ladder of goodness, and at the top of the ladder is God who is absolutely perfect, and at the bottom of the ladder are the most wicked, I mean, this is terrible wickedness. The most wicked people who've ever lived. Mao, Stalin, Hitler, that person who cut you off in traffic, all of those people. Now, here's the question. Where do you place yourself on the ladder? 
Now, before you answer that question, remember the Apostle Paul who wrote more than half the New Testament said, I am the worst of sinners. Billy Graham, I think, is probably the finest man who ever lived in my lifetime, once said, if the Apostle Paul is the worst of sinners, I'm not as good of a person as the Apostle Paul. So if the Apostle Paul is down here, Billy Graham would say, I'm down here too. And by the way, Mother Teresa probably did more good than about anybody in our lifetime. Mother Teresa would say she's down here as well. Oops, Mother Teresa. Now here's the question. Where do you place yourself on the ladder? If Billy Graham and Mother Teresa and the Apostle Paul are, are right down here, where do you place yourself? The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. See, we're here at the bottom of the ladder because we've messed up. Do you understand what Matthew is saying through this genealogy? This is our heritage, and it's not a heritage of pride. It's a, not a heritage of self-righteousness. It is a heritage of the messed up. See, you may look at somebody else in your life, that person who really hurt you, and say, oh, that person is down there with, with Hitler, but I'm above them. No. We're all right down there in desperate need of grace. It's our genealogy. Isn't that good news? Finally, it's a genealogy of hope. Verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to, to the exile of Babylon, 14 generations. From the exile of Babylon to uh, the Messiah, 14 generations. Now what's the deal with the 14s? The modern mind looks at those 14s and say, huh, isn't that convenient that it just kind of all perfectly works out as 14s? Well, the thing you need to understand here is Matthew is not writing a literal genealogy. His, his readers understood that. He understood that. He's writing here figures. We use numbers as figures, too. Maybe not as much as they used to, but if I say, hey, I'll be back in a minute, you don't watch your watch, and make, if I'm not back in 60 seconds, you say something's wrong. You say, oh, that means he's coming back soon, and I can count on it. So numbers are often used in the New Testament for, you know, the picture paints a thousand words. You can say something in a figure that is so much more than what can be said in the literal. What's the deal with the 14s? Out of the 14s, you get 42. That's six sevens. Jesus is the seventh seven. You're saying, Brett, you're being weird about this. What's this whole numbers thing? Sevens carry significance in the Bible. Would you agree? Seven days of creation. The seventh day was a day of Sabbath. The seventh year was a Sabbath year. Every seventh, seventh of a year was to be another Sabbath year. And that was called the year of Jubilee. In that year of Jubilee, that was the year where the, the slaves were set free and all the debts were forgiven and all the land that is purchased had been purchased returns the original family and all the people were to rest from their labors. It was a year of jubilee to the Lord, a year of rest. I would say, Brett, all this number stuff is really weird except 
Jesus claimed this about himself. Do you remember when he introduces himself in Luke chapter 4? He goes to the Old Testament book of Isaiah and he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. Jesus says, I am Sabbath rest. In fact, in verse 21, he began by saying to them, today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. Jesus says, I am the seventh seventh. I am the year of Jubilee. I am the one who has come to give you rest for your souls. He is the Sabbath rest to which all other sevens point. The battle is won in him. It's over. The enemy's been defeated. We can rest. You say, Brett, what do you mean he is our Sabbath rest? He gives us peace to all of our unsettled questions, doesn't he? Identity, morality, meaning, destiny. Who am I? The genealogy of Jesus says my identity is not prostitute or king or conniver or adulterer. You're a child of God. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that Jesus Christ is not ashamed to call us his brother, brothers and sisters. What's right and wrong? You don't have to agonize over it. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the word. We can find rest in his truth. Why does your life matter? Not because the world says so, not because you say so. Your life matters because God has made you for a purpose. The prostitute can be redeemed and used by God, not just the king. You are made by him and for him. You are his hands. You are his feet. His will be done on earth as it is in heaven through you. One of the questions that people read that you'll read when you read online is, will King Manasseh be in heaven? If he truly repented, the Bible says, yes, he will, but not because of his own good, but because all of his sins were laid upon Jesus. And so he can have peace, and so can you. Therefore, since you've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We are not worthy. We don't have reason for pride. But he is the Savior. And the same God who collected a group of deflated, defeated, humiliated, scallywags to be his heritage, his ancestry, to make his list before the first Christmas is continuing to collect names for his family. People who have peace with God through Jesus Christ. The question is, have you asked Jesus to add your name to his family? Have you asked him to put your name on his list because you've called on him as Savior 
and Lord. Be baptized into him today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that it is true. We thank you that we can have peace and purpose and hope because Jesus really did come. It really is good news. And we really can be included not because of our goodness, but because of his. Not because of our work, but because of yours. Now, Lord, I pray that you would do your work right now in each heart. Speak to us, draw us closer to you. Through Christ, I pray. Amen.